Kennedy, the San Francisco Dream. And Dave Capro. Welcome to Discography. Yes, we are the hosts of Discography, which is the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. Speaking of San Francisco, so Joe and I actually lived in San Francisco together for a, a very turbulent period of time. Which it's is like a, a little like a Lennon Lost Weekends thing, but for, yeah. like, for a couple of years. This is very... Uh, Except very, with weed instead of booze and coke. Right, right. It wasn't that dilapidated. But um, <laughs> I actually went out to San Francisco, as did Joe, in an, uh, sort of this all-inclusive project. Joe had a band that was initially called Cornerstone Red, then it was called Archaeology, and I had a script for a film called Jesus 2. Yeah, we were supposed to score the movie. Right. And uh, they were proggy and naughty, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel like we were going for proggy, we were going for like ECM jazz kind of, but uh, when I listen to that stuff now, it mostly sounds like kind of like hippie jam music. Right. And when I look we at- We're trying you- to do like uh, like Pink Floyd metal meets Bitches Brew. You guys had moments. You really yeah, did. had moments. Uh, and when I look at Jesus 2, the script for Jesus 2, uh, I'm beyond embarrassed, but at the time I was on a mission, I had 60 grand I'd raised in cash and 40,000 in credit cards. This was the clerk's era and um i think the best that could be the movie was never completed unfortunately production broke down but if a dave and joe of the future did a discography trawl of of dave and joe us uh this is getting way too meta no you guys are this is back to the future even i don't don't even get it and i I live (laughs) right i live in this timeline right so if you did a trawl of that period of our lives you would you would deem it nascent. I give it one star. I give it one star. I give the agony five stars. Though. I give being a young person five stars. And I During give that, actually living through that one star. Before we uh, progress into uh, in, into the musical portion, I just want to say during that time, I actually lived in a closet. <laughs> it was a pretty big closet. Actually, you know what? It, it wasn't, wasn't even that, that big. Of a closet. It was kind of just a normie closet. Because there were 16 people in my two bedroom apartment when we shut down filming. And to get some privacy, I moved into my freaking closet. I lived in my closet. Oh, the 90s. Mm. Today, we are resuming our career long dissection of Sly and the Family Stone. Welcome to part two of Sly and the Family Stone. And just to recap, on this show, what we do is uh, we take an artist or bands entire discography and we we everything from albums to EPs to singles we give everything a star rating from 0 to 5 including half stars because we're we are very very uh, precise precise in our opinion scientific and we can explain why we give it the star rating that we do um, in any case everything gets a star rating Everything gets reviewed. You get a star rating. Yeah, you get a star rating. All right, so just to go right into it, at this point, it is in 1970, and Sly begins showing up late to shows, or not even bothering to show up at all, and it actually caused riots, including a really bad one in Chicago. So the performances, when they did happen, apparently were often erratic, half-hearted, and pissed off. Um, It was something that snuck up on him, Joe. It was like initially a Vegas type building of tension thing. Yeah, and then this sort of this becomes like the the dominant thing in his life, like the not showing up for uh, shows thing. 
Um, you wonder if he didn't have that problem, his career arc probably would have gone a lot differently because it, it took he away... He alienated so many people. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the not showing up for shows is really um, just a symptom of some other problems. So, so check this bullshit out. And I say this with great respect because I'm obviously... I am one of... I really am an enormous fan of Sly and the Family Stone, but this is totally irresponsible. So in 1970... Sly canceled 26 out of 80 shows. That's fucking ridiculous. It's like, it's like Morrissey level. I don't understand that at all, how you can have a career doing stuff like that. So in February 71, Sly actually missed five concerts in a row. I mean, uh, one time Sly showed up five hours late for a concert at Constitution Hall in D.C., and uh, the crowd started throwing rocks and bottles uh, and the police arrested 18 people and windows were broken for blocks in every direction. And they never had a concert. They never had a concert there, there again. Yeah. This was just typical for Sly's show. So I think psychologically, uh, it be- after a Vegas-type tension builder, it became like a power trip. Like, everything is going to be on my time, damn it. Uh, not yours. But soon he began not showing up at all, I think, because PCP... I mean, PCP... The nickname for this is, is Sherm. The, the effects of PCP, I've never done it, never been interested in doing it, are very, very uh, gruesome to watch, really, really disturbing to watch. But anyway, he began missing shows. He began philosophizing about the irrelevant nature of time itself. Uh, he would always say, I make time. So it, all of a sudden, getting him to every single concert became a major ordeal like a brutal, twisted game that he insisted on playing over and over again for the rest of his How life. How much do you, th- do you think of this as... So, yeah, he's definitely... They're doing PCP, but there's also... Like, it seems like everybody's doing a lot of Coke. Yeah, well, a PCP and Coke? I don't understand why you wouldn't just drink a cup of coffee and smoke a joint. Why do you have to almost literally rip your physiology in two separate pieces? I mean, that's... I don't, I don't get it. Doesn't it just... PCP well, and cocaine, Coke, wouldn't cocaine that just make is you like normal? a cocaine is like a, a dopamine hit, right? So you're kind of getting this sort of like ru- like a rush of pleasure. Why would so. you want to be so up and so down at the same time? I, where is the impulse to do that coming from? So, uh, well, yeah. it's it's kind of common though. I mean, yeah, you know, that's I mean, why people do speed balls. That's you know, like that's yeah. kind of what Elvis was doing. You know, it's right. like. A, you know, because well, it, I mean, I don't know. I've never been that, uh, never really. Um, you I don't know, have a purple heart in anything. I don't have a purple <laughs> heart and courage for doing stuff like that. But um, I could see the logic behind it. You get really super high and you're yeah. way up, and you're like, "Why oh, would shit. you do that? Oh it shit, gets you real high. I, oh, shit. oh shit, I got to get down. How do I get down? Right, oh, right. Get something that brings oh, you back down. And forth. Oh no, I'm down. Now what? Yeah, yeah now I, what? Yeah. It seems like it's not that hard to figure out what, how that can happen. So listen. Everybody, you have to just, uh, you know, just trust us that we're going on the right path here. This is not discographical, but on July 13th, 1970, there was an event that has to be talked about. Sly and the Family Stone were due to appear on the Dick Cavett Show. And the word was out from on high. If Sly didn't get to the Dick Cavett Show, he was a done deal. I guess this is record company people telling him this? I'm not sure how it got to him, but he had to be there. So um, so they pulled out all the stops to get Sly there. So the whole, this whole crazy fucking story, one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in rock history, started with a gig in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So afterwards... 
Sly and the Family Stone were invited to Muhammad Ali's house. That's a no fucking brainer. Sly had to go. You don't turn down an invite like that. So uh, the next morning, Bubba Banks, he woke up in his New York hotel room to find that Sly had completely flown the coop. So it turns out that Sly had taken a plane to L.A. uh, to get to score dope as if dope didn't exist in New York. Well, he knew a guy in L.A. (laughs) He knew a certain guy in L.A. Uh, Unfortunately, though, he was due to appear on the Dick Cavett show in only a few hours in New York. So Bubba reached out to his buddy, Bobby Womack, for assistance. Who's kind of hanging around a lot um, around the sessions for the records and stuff. He's kind of getting to be the inner circle kind of guy. He's an integral part to the Riot story. He's more integral than the band, wouldn't you you say? Yeah, yeah. Is it integral or integral or both? Integral. Is it both or in one? It's more integral. I was just wrong. I don't think it's integral. Okay. All right. Please write in on uh, the. I would di- think it's actually integral. He's an integral part of the band. I, that's what I once thought. It was a, a Rico Erico thing for me. <laughs> All right. So um, this podcast is really um, showing how much uh, that we, how much we read and how little we interact yeah, with human beings. How unerudite I've become at 49 <laughs> years old. So um, Bobby Womack was asked to go over to the Bel Air house to get Sly to the airport and bring him back to New York. Very, very simple. Up, up front and very straightforward. Womack says Sly just found every excuse to go to not go to that show. You take him downstairs and he says, I got to go back upstairs. This goes on for two hours. So they go to an, uh, an, an aviation space in, in New York and Bubba, realizing it was going to be a close call, had a helico- helicopter that was waiting to rush Sly downtown to the studio for the live broadcast. Say what you want about Bubba. He's getting shit done. He is getting shit done, although it's not actually getting done, unfortunately. Uh, So Sly disappeared in the bathroom of Butler Aviation in New York, and Bubba couldn't find him. So um, Bubba looks up under the toilet door, and Sly's got both feet up, uh, so he can't be seen, and he's kneeling down, snorting cocaine, which, by the way, this is how Bubba describes it. But how do you have your feet up and be snorting cocaine? Wouldn't that be just impossible? He must have had to crouch on the toilet like in like a like a baseball catcher and then have like I like, picture him like <laughs> diagonally upside down. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so the helicopter only had room for two. So Sly and Bobby Womack boarded and Bubba headed downtown by car. Bubba looks back over his shoulder as he drives off and sees that unbelievably the fucking helicopter was turning back so bubba turned back to see what the fuck was going down it turned out that the wind in the front seat was blowing sly's drugs around (laughs) so he insisted the pilot return to the terminal so he and bobby could switch seats <laughs> Which Can is one of, one of my favorite little facts. I, I love that. I love the guy who must be the helicopter pilot. The pilot, yeah, best gig ever. <laughs> so by the time Bubba reached ABC, Sly had locked himself in the dressing room of the Dick Cavett show. The band was waiting. The show was airing. It was live. Bubba literally broke the door down and escorted Sly down the circular staircase to the set where he stood alongside the band members, Cavett looked into the camera and solemnly announced, ladies and gentlemen, Sly and the Family Stone. Sly then whispered into Bubba's ear, 
bub, I got diarrhea. I got to go. And he hightailed it back up the circular staircase. So let's talk about that. I know I just talked a lot, but I am just so taken with that story. I also want to thank for details, Joel Selvin, for one of the possibly my favorite Mojo article of all time from the August 2001 issue. Yeah, if you can track that down, the article about Sly. It's a masterpiece. uh, He also created an amazing book in oral history of Fuzz Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, that's the the Mojo article is just bonkers. There's a it's lot. There's a lot more than that. It, it, it's so entertaining. So, Joe, let's talk about the Cavett interview, uh, and also let's- well, first Dick Cavett himself is this kind of like like square but intellectual foil to many hippies of this time, right? So he's kind yeah. of a character. Yeah. He's sort of this like you know, um, he's, he's he's sort like, of tight lipped. He's, but he's like, the square for the hip. Crowd. Yes. He, he was like the guy who could gain entry into that right. world. Right. He's kind of he's a square, but you know he, he you know he's friendly with the hippies. He's hip and, enough, like the Smothers Brothers. Right. So uh, Sly comes on. He's noticeably licking his lips, grinding his teeth. He's, he's noticeably also, he's noticeably on the planet um, like Uranus Neptune. <laughs> but the like, but the weird fucking thing about this appearance, and I've seen it so many times, and you can find it on YouTube. Definitely worth Just watching. look out. Yeah. D- look up Dick Cavett. Uh, Sly Stone, July 13, 1970. And the interesting thing is he is completely lucid, but he's bonkers at the same time. He's not nervous, but he's just absent. Yeah, he's just coming from another planet, you know? I yeah, mean, he's totally from another place. So, you know, this... Uh, and, and then oddly, when they play, I mean, they are so... It's so incendiary the performance is so ridiculously good well some musicians um you know they do drugs and the music uh suffers for it not sly (laughs) sly can get really high he can get deep he can go and and, like quicksand in fact it's some people have uh you know not to glorify drug use because the amounts that sly did really ruined him as a person but um He's he's transmitting from like another plane. It's another sphere of existence that he's coming from. Like the some of the more druggy performances that you get out of him in the next, you know, on this, especially on the next album. The music, in some ways, uh, especially the music he was going to make, it almost was mocking. Especially the horn lines, like things like um, "Running Away" and "You Caught Me Smiling," which obviously comes up later on, but. You know, this is music that mocks him. The lyrics slice him, slices himself up uh, in a, a therapeutic, in an uncomfortable therapeutic way. Uh, and, you know, at this point, he's all the boxes of tapes, the hours and hours of smacked out playing and recording uh, results in an actual record. On November 1st, 1971, that record is released. Initially, it was to be called Africa Talks to You. Then Marvin Gaye's What's Going On comes out six months before Riot comes out, and instead it was retitled in response to Marvin's query. It was now called There's a Riot Going On. And it's one of the greatest records ever made. Certainly, It's in of, my top ten. Certainly one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, it, it is maybe the most extreme example of a time and place record where just the, the sweaty, drugged out, desperate vibe of that, his home studio is just palpable. You know, the the whole end of the 60s, ascribing the end of the 60s to something, you know, was it Altamont? I mean, Riot actually serves as a potential monument 
uh, to something that could be a signifier of the end of the 60s? Well, I mean, you know, look, the, the end of the 60s, I think, meant a lot, something a lot different to the black community. You know, like they, you know, you look at the civil rights the movement and the massive climb that they, that, you know, that just to get basic, the most think, basic forms of equality, just to, to you know, yeah. to, to be able to drink out of water fountains. Like right. How, so, how much bloodshed had to go into that. So concepts like that to a lot of people who Sly actually grew up with on the streets, I mean, these were literally just that. They were concepts. They weren't things that were acted out on Hate Street. Yeah, so the, the end of the 60s thing means something a lot different. Means, I not, think, means to, potentially to nothing to him. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, uh, I think that the, there's a disillusionment very justifiably creeping in that you know things may be getting a little better but there's still a really really long way to go i just want to say this you know the word negation yeah negation is a an overriding factor here on these recordings and this is their their fifth album there's a riot going on and out of nowhere there's complete and total darkness after years of pure light so most of these tunes were were recorded using overdubbing as opposed to the way they'd done everything up to this point yeah, and I think by the time this came out, the actual Family Stone bands... They were done. Yeah, they, they, they were kind of, you know, they make some cameos on this. But it was that thing of like, whoever happens to be around, come on down and play on this, you know. Uh, mainly the horn section, though, because Stone wound up playing most of the parts himself and performed more of the lead vocals than was usual. There was not that group harmony thing. The, the style of funk on this itself... Um, starts to change it's 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 some of the songs in this especially have a sort of dense and like naughty kind of funk to them um kind of scary kind of scary but i would say it's scary like as a kid hearing this stuff you know i was maybe 13 14 when i heard it it was it seemed dark and impenetrable well the world of like that was bitches brew yeah well i was just going to say that the world that I, i think you know this record really influenced miles and that sort of that same kind of naughty thanks to betty davis who yeah, we'll be covering yeah. soon <laughs> that same naughty kind of dense almost like uh like like a almost like prog at some points the, yeah. the com- how complicated some of the riffs get the asphalt jungle but, but still, that's definitely but prog. still extremely funky it's you could it's but the not sound da- that not dance funky lay down funky yeah it's kind of the the funk that miles the the same like uh avenue of funk that miles would explore and like on the corner you know sly uh you know one interesting aspect of the recording you know since we're talking about those naughty tangles uh, on top of the naughty tangles and that prog like funk you have this thick dense uh, blanket of tape hiss <laughs> due to the recording and re-recording and re-recording i think and- part of it is probably due to the constant they uh they would go over the tapes a million times but then it's probably there i don't think there's like a plus levels of engineering happening at this time i don't think they're really like uh I think he some of these also, things are probably recorded badly with all like noise and. Well, know, he like, he was never happy with what he had. What I've recounted is the Family Stone as a band are only playing together on the last track. Besides that, you have tons of Sly. You have Bobby Womack, mm-hmm. Jim Ford, who wrote the song Harlan County. Mm-hmm. Joe Hicks is around. Ike Turner's around. Billy Preston is around. Not only is he around, he plays the fucking organ on, on Family Affair. Yeah. Um, Herbie Hancock's around. He even titled the song Sly on Headhunters. And Miles Davis is is on blow and keyboards, uh, not trumpet. With uh, you can hear him. You can hear him if you turn up way in the background. You can hear like you can hear sniff percussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
Anyway, not to uh, getting back to the sound of the record. You know, yes, there is tape hiss. Yes, there's less than optimal uh, sound engineering on a lot of this, but it sounds great. That's not. That's it's, not. It's, that it's is one of the best sounding. Not to ever. Su- not to suggest at all that I don't like the way this record sounds. Quite the contrary. I, I wish all of his records sounds. sounded like this. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it sounds. It sounds like when you put it on the turntable, it sounds like the record. There's something wrong with it. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, in a it's really sound, good way. It actually sounds like the master tapes were coated in human feces. <laughs> Seriously. It it, look, it sounds like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre looks. Also, the uh, the style of vocal recording it's it's a it's very dry, very unprocessed. Yeah. So yeah. one of the, the it's not the, only that, but he's not standing when he's doing a lot of the vocals. He's laying down because he's too fucked up. Sometimes the vocals go crazy into the red. Where yeah. they're just burying the needle, and that's like what what, what the compression and is. And it's part of the music. Instead of putting on a works. compressor on something, they'll just bury something in the red, and that's and it, it's. Um, but it, you know, there's an energy to that. Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's so a, there's, Sly, a, there's an urgency to it. Sly know. wanted to release the first track as uh, or the first track on the album as the first single. Yeah, love and hate, which love is and hate. very uncommercial. Uh, yeah, kind it, of thing to be a single. It's kind of like a, a PCP advertisement. Yeah, it feels it's a, so good. Don't want to move. Yeah. But the record company went with Family Affair. They they pushed it, and that's Billy Preston on Rhodes piano, a drum machine. Sister Rose repeating the song title between cupped hands and Sly on vocals. I mean, what can you it say about that? Released it's, it's in November seventy one, went straight to number one. It was their biggest hit. That's kind of crazy. That was their biggest hit. It's it's a pretty avant garde production. It's such really. a good song. But yeah. before we even get to the songs, let's talk you want to talk about the influence this this album had? Well, I mean I want to throw a bunch of people out there. Curtis Mayfield, Staple Singers, The OJs, War, The Temptations, Johnny Nash, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, The Undisputed Truth, Chai Lights, Herbie Hancock, Miles, uh, Norman Whitfield at Motown. Uh, I mean everything changed. And then I think even beyond that, into like the Soulquarians, D'Angelo, Macy Gray. Oh, like, yeah. You know, it you know, keeps, yeah, it definitely Its influence keeps is uh, timeless, you know. Um, this is my favorite Sly album by a long shot. Um, every single song on the record's a masterpiece. Would you agree, Joe? Yeah. There's not, a, there's not one bum note on this record. Love and Hate's How It Kicks Off. Okay, so he sounds like, right off the bat, he's in the wrong kind of funk. It's a dirty, nasty horrifying funk yeah this is one of the ones i was kind of referring to as like naughty like it's almost like a king crimson kind of lick or something yeah and if you really sit down and look at the lyric sheet it is about giving in and succumbing to addiction willingly and gladly so right off the bat this is the 60s end game i mean you just look at the title um you talk about hate you know the bummer in the summer the, the you know the love thing and talking about um Everything I've heard post Summer of Love, you could walk down Hate Street and get knifed for a bag of groceries. <laughs> that's what I've heard. So that's love and hate for you. Again, the the lyrics on this record are kind of the secret weapon of it. They they really uh, fit the the style of playing and the that the the atmosphere that, that kind of dank atmosphere. The lyrics really seem to fit right in. They're so good. The music He's underrated is, as a yeah, lyricist. Absolutely. Um, then the second song, Just Like a Baby. Let's talk about the rhythm of this song because it sounds like this lurching, staggering golem of monster. Greasy. This is a very scary song um, with this sort of weird hollow whistle of a synth track that blows through it. Um, and he sounds very fucked up on this song. Yeah, this is kind of really, 
you know, I wonder, I would love to know how this was uh, put together, this song. It sounds kind of like a, it's a series of like a few different kind of vamps. Like, you know, a vamp is like a section in a song that you kind of just repeat kind of a figure for a set number of bars. And so it feels like it kind of has, kind of goes from vamp to vamp. Um, yeah, the, like those parts that go, <laughs> and it's got the, uh, the, I love the little like clavinet lick that comes out of the, out of the verses. <laughs> it's so, it has, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's, uh, has the ex- sort of extreme sort of behind the beats feel that D'Angelo would kind of traffic in later. Um, it's so off and so perfect. Yeah, really I mean the, the 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 vocals are just really weird and like thin sounding, like he's singing right in your ear. It, seems, kind of. it sounds fucking harrowing. It sounds like a cry for help. Yeah, super like intimate, like weird druggy vocal. And then comes fam. Then I'm sorry, not. But fam- it's also good. it's just incredibly musical. Everything in it, everybody's playing. It's 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 it's, it's like a it's basically like a six eight feel. So it's kind of has like a. It has that kind of do 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 you know. So it's it's like a six eight piece, but it has it's like the deepest like like most most just greasy sticky six eight you will ever hear. And then moving on, we got poet. So the the question here that I always ask myself because the lyrics are so straightforward that it's almost impossible to ascertain. Uh, is he serious or making fun of himself? I don't even know what's going on with the song, and it, it, it's very engaging for that reason. Um, what do you think? I mean, this song to me, poet, it's just again, it's just the funkiest motherfuckers in the world playing the funkiest shit possible. It's I think the lyrical content doesn't really matter. That I think it's I think it is kind of sincere. I think I think he's you know that he's saying. It's it's a little bit of a mission statement. I feel like for this record, yeah. Um, but it also sometimes reads as self parody to me, uh, and sometimes as a reminder that he has things to do other than lay around and smoke sherm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you're kind of right. I think it is sort of a uh, you know I, I, I could see it as sort of like a parody kind of thing. Um, you didn't. You never quite know where he's coming from, and that was the genius of the early Eminem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you kind of never, he was playing around with perspective and Sly's really doing it here. He's doing the kaleidoscope thing, but he's never lying about himself. He's just turning the kaleidoscope. Yeah. This is one of those ones too, that it has, um, I think the way that it sounds like it has the drum machine going on underneath it and then they play on top of the drum yeah, machine. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. So that's kind of an interesting, um, it it's, gives it a staggered feel, right? Well, also it kind of gives it the effect that they're playing on a click because the drum machine is sort of uh, like uh, acting as a click because you have to stay locked into it. So it's kind of modern in that respect. It's like acoustic drums and then like this loop kind of laid on top of it. It's it's kind of ahead of its time in that way. And then we move into Family Affair, which Joe, as you know, possibly is their last number one hit. Right. Uh, which we already talked about. We move into... Probably the naughtiest song on the record, Africa Talks to You, The Asphalt Jungle. Yeah. Um, so then moving on, because we already touched on that earlier, the King Crimsonness of it. Let's talk about the shortest song in history. The title track of the record, There's a Riot Going On. Which we'll play for you right now. It's listed. That's right. We're going to try to clear okay. the rights. <laughs> Here it is. Wait, hold on. And that was it. That was it. Okay. So... In, two, in uh, 1997, Sly said that the track had no running time because, quote, I felt there should be no riots. 
Anyway, moving on, but it is listed on the album. So side B, we start with a very, very good song, Brave and Strong. Yeah. The, the horn lines, again, something we talked about before, they, they sound like they're mocking him. And he sings about really serious shit. Frightened faces to the wall, oh, can't you hear it, your mama call. Out and down, ain't got a friend, you don't know who turned you in. This is some fucked up stuff. Um, yeah, this is paranoid Sly doing at, at his, you know, at his most paranoid. And then he's ducking and, and, and running. You caught me smiling. It's kind of a faint to the left. One of my favorite Sly songs Great ever. Great song. It's got this lazy vibe to it that is just absolutely spot on. The bass line is just uh, that great like lyrical bass line. Um, and then possibly my favorite song on the record and potentially my favorite Sly song along with I Want to Take You Higher is the song Time. So he is so fucking stoned uh, and, and it is so terrifying at a bass level. It's a bummer classic. It re- it's such a good song. I, I never get sick of hearing this. And then there's at two minutes and 43 seconds, he makes this grunt that is one of the scariest moments in rock history for me. And it always gets me down right to the court. You got to go straight to discograffiti.com and play it from the playlist because this is, it really is one of the great classics. This one sort of sums up the riot aesthetic the most to me. This is kind of like the, if you, if you really want to get into the vibe and sound of this record, this is what it's all about. The song time. It really is. Um, it's just, uh, it's so, it's one of the great bummer songs. It's, you know, to, what are the other class? what are some other classic bummer songs that go on your bummer playlist? On the Beach, that I one mean, go on, Yeah, but mind. even from Sly would this be... This is even more of a bummer than On the Beach. <laughs> yeah, you could pick any fucking song from this record, but um, then he does kind of a... It, it just sounds like he's like a leaf that's going to blow away. You know? you know, it's interesting from the, uh, he does, he does. It's kind of his, um, his Till I Die period, right? Um, so then it's, I find it's interesting because there's a clarity of thought on time. It's, 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 you know, wandering, but there's a clarity to it. And then it goes to Spaced Cowboy, which is just kind of like his thought process going to shit because of Sherm wandering. Yeah, that's the closest thing I like. I still love Space Cowboy. It's, it's great. It's the closest thing on the record to kind of a throwaway. Yeah. But um, still, you know, Everything still Everything I like is nice. That's why I try to have it twice. <laughs> yeah. There he is again, telling us the truth. However unfortunate. Then running away with the mocking horn lines again. And then the classic refrain, look at you fooling you, which is absolutely classic sly so honest it's painful to I listen mean, yeah, to running away is like come on it's too good it's yeah, just too it's it's just everything about it is great the, and then the, the deeper the, in debt the harder you bet that's what he was mm-hmm. doing the heart that has that great bounce in the verse like and then the the the, the great b section with that little funky guitar lick and oh man it's, it's perfect it's so damn good and then we have how can, the you, only... be, how can you be that high and make music like i know that? it's pretty well, it amazing let's say it didn't last long dude. <laughs> it kind of um, did it, well, it did. lasted longer than it should have that's for sure <laughs> but then it ends with the only group performance on the record thank you for talking to me africa with the refrain that to me again to call back to that first record and the knee-jerk change in direction because because of Sly, clive davis's direction um Slive Davis. That would be a fly machine thing, right? <laughs> In any case, um, dying young is hard to take. Selling out is harder. I think this is part of the tapestry of thought that went into this record. 
Uh, this is five stars easy. This is a hard five. So, yeah, there's a riot going on. If that's not a five-star record, there are not such things as five-star records. This Maybe you should make up a, a this six-star six six record. record. It really is. I agree with Joe. So then we have to wait two years because there's a lot of fun. The PCP is not going to smoke itself. Right. Uh, in 1973, Fresh comes out, which I call Diet Riot. <laughs> um, so you just look at the cover, Joe. You got a Richard Avedon picture, who is you know the star making machine. He's got a heel clicking, overly smiley uh, expression on his face that, right off the bat, seems to negate the negation that he tried to shove down our throats on Riot. He's already fri- flipped his hand, and that's the problem here: is that we know what's going on. Well, the other thing going on in the background is he's still like he's becoming unbookable as a uh, as a as a touring artist. So uh, troubles are starting to mount. So this record, Fresh, was still pretty successful for him, but the troubles, the financial troubles, and the it's shit's starting to get crazy. So yeah, I'm, I'm talking about this, record quality. This, this well, I, well, I, th- I think it reflects it in the record yeah, quality yeah, it because it he's, he must feel like okay, I can't make another riot. I can't, you know, I got to make something that's going to bring that's going to put the butts back in the seats and get me some goodwill. That's a lot of what the from now from the, from this point forward. That's kind of a running theme with Sly. It was like okay, I need to win back some goodwill. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I guess it started here. You're right. Yeah. But like part of him cared, part of him didn't care. You know, I mean, look, the band is falling apart at at this point. Well, this one. okay. there's a there's a a key new player on the scene, which is Andy Newmark. So this one, they're not doing the drum machine thing anymore, really, on this one. And it's it's Andy Newmark has a has a very focused, tight and polished kind of sound. And the band takes takes that on. Larry's gone. Right. So it's a kind of more of a nimble. Rusty as, uh, Rusty Allen is in the band. Yeah. So and it's, plus, a, it's a pretty dope rhythm section. And I have Jerry to say. Martini's got Pat Rizzo now on sax next right, to him. Right. So this this is their last album placing in the top 10. So things are starting to tumble. But just looking at the, the tracks themselves, to me, as far as I'm concerned, there's four great, great songs on this. Uh, and then there's some good songs and some shit. For the first time, so do you agree with that assessment or no? I like most of Fresh. I've, and a I, lot of um, people love Fresh. I liked it. Uh, I liked it quite a lot. The problem to me is its proximity to Riot, which is so towering. It's just in its shadow to me. So in time is great. You start with the the most Riot like line of the entire record, which is "There's a Mickey in the tasting of disaster," <laughs> and also the line I switched from Coke to Pep. And I'm a connoisseur. <laughs> and then the other great songs, I think, are If You Want Me to Stay, a cover of Doris Day's Que Sera, Sera their only cover ever, uh, and Skin I'm In. Well, I like a lot of a, a bunch of other ones. So in time, the first tune, it's it's uh, it's a little that this one is a little has does have that riot strategy. It's a bit of that dense kind of funk, like the funk on Riot. Um, but it's got a happier, jumpier sound. It does. I think that's mostly the rhythm section. I think it's mostly like the, it's a very tight and kind of uh, and and uh, polished, but um, quiet. Yeah, it's got a. It's got it's. You know, less, you know, that naughtiness that was uh, in Riot, that's gone. Yeah. Well, no, it's still, I think rhythmically it's still pretty complex. At least that first song, um, the, the, in, in time, it's still, it's a similar kind of like rhythmically complex thing. They just, it, it's a different kind of pocket. It's a different kind of groove they have. 
with um, with with the new rhythm section. Um, you know, if you want me to stay, that's a classic single. I like the song "Frisky" a lot. That one is. I like I like it. I don't. One, it's not on the same level. That one's kind me, of a gem of a funk tune to me. Um, thankful and thoughtful is good. I don't know. I like that's that one's like got a greasy kind of feel I, to it. I don't. I do not like that song. I I don't know. Satisfaction is to me along with "Keep On Dancing." Uh, which has the refrain "Dance to the music." Yeah, that he's, one I was already really doing. Into. He's already shitting out bullshit. But I don't know. I like the playing, and I don't know. Like that that groove is pretty is pretty. Uh, I don't know. Whatever happened to pretty you hot. Know, dying young Shit's is hard hot. to take, and selling out is harder. To me, this is like massive sellout shit. Well, and I like babies making babies too. Yeah, that one's decent. It, I don't. The think lyrics are a little on the nose on that one. It's too on the nose to me. But I mean, um, it's anathema to the sort of multi layered, burnt out thing that he did on riot so on that one is ducking and hiding and you know this it, one okay so like a record like the to me uh fresh and then the record after it are kind of similar in a way it's a, it's a similar lineup and that the band has a similar kind of sound um and that but see the, those two records i can kind of enjoy just on the playing level mm-hmm. um the the you know the the grooves themselves the the actual like the, the quality of the funk is very high they start to lose that to me kind of after that. The, yeah. the, the players are kind of not as premium and the, the funk is just not as deep. And to me, these are the fresh is a really good funk record. I, you know, I can't really, I'm trying to hold it apart from riot and not compare it directly to riot. I mean, you can really only make a record like riot once, but on its terms, um, as a funk record, I like fresh a lot. I gave it four and a half. I give it four. Uh, it's not that far off. No, it's not that far off. It's, I have to say, though, on this particular trawl, as I was listening to the band, I mean, everything, you know, everything chronologically, you know, live appearances, whatever we could get our hands on. Even my notes are 21 pages long, typewritten. So when I was listening for the purposes of this trawl, Fresh was the most disappointing record. I was expecting to like it in a different way than Riot. And maybe my approach was wrong. It was a post-riot uh, light sort of experience. But, you know, then it moves into a record that I think truly does get short shrift. Now Sly is sort of moving into being a celebrity, so uh, or attempting to anyway. So some backstory first. Um, he married a model-slash-actress already in trouble named Kathy Silva, on June 5th, 1974, during a sold-out performance at Madison Square Garden. So they made predictably flamboyant plans for a laser light show, a real-life angel flying on wires, dropping gold glitter all over the audience. Did Sly show up? (laughs) (laughs) See, that would have been totally epic. He marries Kathy Silva, um... And the couple uh, actually went up separating in 1976 uh, after their son was mauled by um, Sly's dog, Gun. So Silva later told People magazine, I didn't want that world of drugs and weirdness. Gun is a fucking bummer, man. But before any of that shit could go south, Sly made sure to pump out his domestic bliss LP, and it was called Small Talk. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone's seventh LP and the last, the very last, to feature the original band, however modified. So their last top 40 hit ever was Time for Living, uh, a mellow and underrated outing for them. This is 
Um, even at this early stage in his career, Joe, this is really obscure for him. And it, it, to me, it's a better record than Fresh. It's mellow, super chill, almost like the Beach Boys' friends, this little gem. And there are strings. Sid Page is even listed as a band member for this record. Well, this is one of my favorite kind of under the radar, like underappreciated, uh, underrated albums. It's the same band as the last record and the same kind of approach. But this one, I think, is more across the board. Uh, the material is better quality. Um, and the mood. And the, and the mood and, is yeah. unified. So, yeah, Fresh is kind of weird. It's kind of transitional. The, Small Talk has kind of a clear uh, mood and feel to it. It does. There's a lazy, groggy charm to the record yeah. that kind of fits. It feels, sounds kind of optimistic. It, it does. It fits a Sunday morning. So, um, the bu- no bummer, no bummer vibes in this. No, week. not at all, not at all. So it's uh, downright you know, like warm and fuzzy. Like right, right out of the gate, you have the the title track, which is uh, basically "Baby Gaga Goo Goo" and the newlyweds babbling happily yet incoherently in the background. It's you know a minor song, but it totally sets the mood. I would say it's a great song. Yeah, and they, by the way, there's a lot of great songs. The material on this record's fantastic. By this this kind of mid period, Sly they had kind of a strategy going. Well, I guess he kind of always did this, where they he would just come up with the great funk vamp. He would just come up with a great feel and groove. And they would play the shit out of it, and then it seems to me that the way they did it was they would probably graft a song on top of it. Yeah, they have right. like, their call and response vocals. They'd be like a hook, but the heart of a lot of these songs are, is like just some whatever sick like vamp and groove they came up with. Right, right. So the first major song on the record is "Say You Will," which is just fucking awesome. Great pocket. I mean, it, great it really, feel. I mean, different feel than the previous records. But really welcome and very pleasant. The same with Mother Beautiful, Time for Living, Can't Strain My Brain. Loose Booty's a fucking classic. Yeah. That song is amazing. And the Beasties obviously sampled it for Shadrach. Yeah, a very prominent sample with the Dust Brothers. And, and the they Beasties. did a, you know, a uh, um, hardcore punk version of Time for Living, which is kick ass yeah. on Check Your Head. Um, the Sly Time for Living tune is super cool, super mellow, kind of like that was like, I like you were saying, that's like kind of their last radio hit, but. You know, good, yeah, hook, it's, good hook in that song. My favorite song on the record is Wishful Thinking. Yeah. I, I, those sparse kind of ballads like that always always love, hit the spot for me. To me, it's almost like it, it it would vie for inclusion on Riot, where it recorded at that at that time. Um, this is Love, Better Thee Than Me, Living While I'm Living. I would say great record. I would give it four and a half stars. I also gave it four and a half. Nice. Um, Joe, we are very similar people, but different in crucial ways. <laughs> We're so different that you gave Fresh four stars and I gave it four and a half. Right. But somehow we make this friendship work. <laughs> somehow. So uh, at this point, since 1970, live bookings for Sly and the Family Stone have dropped precipitously. Uh, promoters were super cautious about Sly or one of the band members missing the gig, refusing to play, or just flat out passing out from drugs. In January 1975, the band booked itself at Radio City Music Hall in New York. This is the end of the band. The venue wound up being only one-eighth occupied, and Stone and the band had to scrape together money to return home. This was the breaking point. Following the Radio City gig, the band broke up. Sly and the Family Stone were no more. Join us on... Part three of Sly and the Family Stone, or better known as Sly Stone, 
And then this family stone again, and then Sly Stone again. Check out discography.com and go right binge listening into Discography Sly Stone Part Three. And See binge all of our, binge every episode. That's that's up there. They're all worthy. You can uh, they're all free. You go up there and you click on them, and uh, you can you can hear them. All likable, chock full of information and great interplay. We will uh, see you next time on part three. Thank you. Can't wait. Mm-hmm.